All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at church government this morning. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 10, and then we'll, um, we'll end up bumping over to Titus um, a little bit later. But let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Let's pray. Our Father and Sovereign Lord, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. Can be seated. I want to begin our time here this morning in the Word with a few introductory comments uh, pertaining to the broad topic of church government. Oftentimes, when discussing the sphere and jurisdiction of church government, people will immediately jump to the Bible's teaching on elders and deacons. Now, to be clear, we are going to talk about the officers of the church, absolutely. Um, However, I would hasten to add that, broadly speaking, we need to see church government in a similar way we, that we do with the other spheres of government that God has given to us. Um, all governments have jurisdictional boundaries, and we need to know what their limits are and so forth. So we don't want to get caught up in a situation where church elders are telling you exactly what color of car you have to drive. You know, that sort of jurisdictional boundary is what we're talking about. Now, at a most basic level is the government of the self. That is the foundational, foundational government. The most basic level is government of the self. A man or a woman or a child's ability to manage his own affairs with meekness, humility, courage, and boldness, that is what we mean by self-government you being able to manage yourself. How does she manage her time, her schedule, her tongue? How does he manage his attitude when confronted with a difficult situation? These are all self-government questions. Um, what are you like behind closed doors? What do you do behind closed doors? Are you a self-managed person or do you give yourself over to various sins? So these are all issues of self-government. Self-government finds its origin in our being made in the image of God. So we are called to self-government because we're made in the image of God. 
And when that image breaks down because of sin, when things happen in the world by our own sins or the sins of others, then self-government goes awry. Uh, I've seen these repeatedly recently, but especially in San Francisco, they, these looters just go in with a mob and they just take stuff and nobody can do anything about it. Uh, it, it happened over the weekend at a Nordstrom uh, in California. I don't remember exactly where, but you just think, wow, that's really evil. Way to disrespect the business. And businesses have to decide to just leave because if their community isn't gonna respect it, so be it. But you look at that and you think, this is a major breakdown of self-government here a major breakdown of self-government. And, and no one is using the law to really get them to stop doing that. And that's what the jurisdictional authority of the state is supposed to be, to punish evildoers, and so that the rest of us will fear, Deuteronomy tells us, so that nobody does these sorts of things. But when, when, government, when, I, when the government of self breaks down, and then you have other governments breaking down as well, you have chaos. So an individual self-government is only as good as his ability to follow what Scripture teaches and commands. Your self-government is only as good as your ability to follow what Scripture teaches and commands. If you're not able to know what the Bible says and know what your response is supposed to be and those sorts of things, then your self-government isn't going to be very good. It's going to be rather shoddy. Now, when that breakdown occurs, folly is the resultant effect. When self-government breaks down in your own life, we, we make foolish decisions sometimes, right? We, we say something we shouldn't have, we did something we shouldn't have, we made a bad financial mis, you know, mistake here, did something there. That's all a breakdown of self-government, and, but that's what happens. Folly is what ends up becoming a result. You realize, well, shoot, I made a bad decision there, and now I have to you know, I have to deal with the consequences because of my own silliness, my own foolishness. But even worse, though, is a total collapse of, of other governments because of said sin and folly. And the breakdown of self-government is what we have going now. It's a chain reaction. It's going into our po- politicians, and, and they're all a reflection of us. You know, when, when, you, when you see a politician um, who can't string two, two words together to save his life, that's a reflection of America. And it's a bad reflection because it doesn't describe every single person, but generally speaking, that's the direction we're going. And Calvin said it best, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So we need to go back to the foundational government here. So all that said, self-government is the foundation of the other three spheres. We have family government, we have church government, and we have civil or state government. And this understanding of sphere sovereignty was really developed by Abraham Kuyper and some of the other Dutch Reformed uh, teachers and preachers. But the the self is the foundation. The self is, is, is all of, that's the cement. That's everything that's at the bottom. What's built on that is family government and church government and civil government and that's the house of God's governments. Now the health of all of those other spheres as I've argued rests on the self-government of its constituents. So your family isn't going to be great if self-government is lacking. 
the, the, frankly, the church will not be great if self-government is lacking. When self-government fails, you, you can cause all sorts of problems in a church, and there can be a breakdown, just like it can be in a family, and it can be at the civil level. Therefore, when we speak of church government, we're assuming some level of competency within the visible church regarding self-control and self-governance. If a man cannot handle his anger, how can he handle his family? If a man cannot handle his family, how can he handle the church? If a man cannot contribute to the health of his church, how can he handle the culture out there? We have nothing to teach the world if we're not doing it in our churches and in our families and at the individual level. So church government includes, it definitely includes what elders and deacons are set aside to do, but it's more than this. It includes membership and how we view membership and, and, and this covenantal understanding of what the Bible demands from us and what the Bible commands for us. What are my obligations towards my brothers and sisters when we look around the room? Do I have obligations towards my brothers and my sisters? That's all church government, how we manage our affairs and how we respond to one another. Uh, what, what obligations do we have that's rooted in Scripture? And not only that, what does God expect from us? That's the question we want to ask. Further, when we think of church government, yes, it includes membership, it includes our covenantal responsibilities towards one another, but it includes church discipline and how we handle conflict within the church. There are certain procedures that are supposed to be in place by Scripture and uh, when those things don't happen, then chaos ensues. Church government does matter, and the Bible does tell us how to be organized locally. But government within the body of Christ also includes the general spiritual health of its members in relationship to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. So if you are not walking with the Lord, that's going to spill over into your family. It's going to spill over into the church. And then you look at the chaos around us and you think, how did we get here? Well, it started with us. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. Now, since we have been in the process of establishing ourselves a bit more formally this past year, it'll be important for us to know some of these things, which is why I thought we should include it in the series. So let's look at our text again in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, along with his missionary team, did a lot of work in the area of establishing local churches. That was one of the big tasks. The gospel was going forward, people were becoming Christians, and now we have to figure out how to organize ourselves. They did a lot of work in this area, and central to their mission was finding good men for the task. Who's going to organize this church? And we've seen this already, uh, but the church has a missional character we saw that in the first message of this series. But it also has an institutional structure. And it's not either or. Some people err on, on both sides, but we have to hold those together. There's a missional character that requires us to disciple the nations, that requires us to do evangelism, that requires us to put ourselves out there in the world with the light of truth. But there's also an internal institutional structure to it as well. And we need to build out the institutional nature of the church. Here in verse 1, we're told that if, if a man aspires to the office, he desires a good work. 
Now, aspiring to be an overseer or an elder is noble, but it must be tested. Some men just want to be in charge and tell others what to do. (laughs) And you have to be able to discern that. And I've seen that. Men who really want to be an elder because they want control. They want power. Um, They just want control. They want to tell others what to do. But testing is required, and the test is whether or not the man is driven by godly ambition wrought by the Holy Spirit or ungodly ambition wrought by his own prideful machinations. And this is why these things take more than five minutes to figure out. (laughs) It takes time. Following this, Paul tells us what an overseer or elder is supposed to look like. He must be a he for starters. (laughs) Shocking. Look at verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. So the pronouns do matter. He must be a he. So women who aspire to this are aspiring for something they are not permitted to aspire to. (laughs) Second, the man must have certain character qualifications. He must be above reproach, meaning he has to be blameless. Uh, He must be the sort of man that adversaries have no real charges to bring against him. He must only be married to one woman. He must be temperate or self-controlled and sober. Uh, These men have to be sensible or self-restrained, understanding. Being respectable, of course, matters, and this is demonstrated by an orderly and arranged lifestyle. Um, Elders are men who have control of themselves. They're self-restrained. They're not somebody who just flies off the handle when the waitress brings the wrong food. Are you kidding me? How incompetent are you? Send this back. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's incompetence, but the way you act towards outsiders matters. You have to have some level of blamelessness. Now, elders are to be hospitable, and this is often misunderstood because hospitality in the Greek literally means love for strangers. Um, It means a love for strangers. It's it's not a competition of how many people you can have over to your house for dinner. Uh, Some people fall into that trap. But hospitality looks like a whole lot of different things. It's how you receive other people. It's how you you receive people that you don't even know. Um, Many times in hospitality in the ancient world, you just, they didn't have hotels. And if they did, it was a brothel situation. So you really didn't want to go there. So you would rely on other Christians to receive you into, okay, you believe in Christ? Awesome. You're, you're a brother? Great. We have a bed down in the basement. Go for it. You know, like that's, hospitality doesn't always, it doesn't, um, it doesn't preclude us from fellowship in this sense, but mostly, biblically, the definition pertains to those who are outside of the church. How welcoming are you in them into your life? Qualified elders are elders that are able to teach. They, they need to be able to communicate sound doctrine. They may not necessarily have the gift of preaching. Um, they may just simply be somebody who knows sound doctrine. They know their Bible, and they can sit down with you at, over a cup of coffee and, and explain to you why substitutionary atonement matters. The Bible says they must not be addicted to wine nor are they to be pugnacious. That is, they must not be the type of guys who are always getting others violently riled up. And, and I've seen people like that, that think they want to be an elder, but they really enjoy riling people up. 
Rather than that, they should be considerate. That is, they should be fair and equitable. They must be peaceable. And obviously, you don't want to stir up ungodly controversy. So that's the type of peace of being peaceable that we're looking for. They must not love money. He must lead his home spiritually, financially, and in all godliness. His children are to be taught self-control with dignity. And Paul says here in verse 5 that if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God, which is the household of God? And so the family is where the training ground really begins. A man who was recently converted, say within a year or maybe two, must not be an elder yet. Now, you can be hard-nosed about this, but you have to remember, when Paul was converted, he spent two years in his own self-imposed exile before he began his apostolic work. And so, we don't want to create a law where there is no law, but when you look at Scripture, you realize, okay, you know, Saul knew his Bible. He was converted rather uh, wildly on the road to Damascus, right? And then, rather than jumping into it, he spent two years studying and learning and scouring the Old Testament scriptures. And wow, yes, Jesus is here. This is, this is, this is Jesus. This is how we get there, and so on. So we don't want a recent convert, um, but we also have to remember that the reason Paul says this here is because otherwise his pride will puff up. And so you have to be able to look for that element, especially in a young man, is he prone to having his pride puffed up? Because that could be simply a lack of testing. He's not battle-hardened. He may be a young man with a whole lot of zeal and a whole lot of knowledge, but how, how does he actually act? How does he respond with, with this knowledge? Is it, is it humility? Um, you can test that out in the real world. Go to the university for five minutes. You can find out whether or not that's the case. Um, but you have to be able to not have someone who's going to be puffed up because that only hurts the church of God and makes us look proud. Now, that's not to be confused with having someone with confidence who can know things and explain those things either. But finally, Paul says he needs to have a good reputation with outsiders, which means the church needs to see the same guy show up on Sunday who was just with his neighbors the day before. There can't be a difference there. He can't show up on Sunday and someone walks up, oh, hey, you were crazy at that party last night. Okay, well, we may have a problem. Because <laughs> that guy's not crazy, but apparently he is with his neighbors. Now, this last section here pertains to deacons. Deacons need to be dignified. They need to be venerable. People of respect. Um, they're not to be caught in double talk. Um, not saying one thing and doing another, or saying two different things depending on who it is you're talking to. They are not to be drinking too much alcohol, Paul says. They're not to swindle folks for gain, that's in verse 8. What marks a deacon is they need to be committed to the Christian faith. That's the big thing, verse 9. They have to be committed to the Christian faith, and it's proven. Just like the elders, the deacons need to be tested first before being put in place. And the character qualifications, by the way, are all the same. And these qualifications are for everyone, by the way. It's not you get a pass because, well, I'm not an elder. I don't have to be sensible. <laughs> I don't have to have a good reputation with outsiders because I'm not an elder. Well, no, everybody is called to this. Some people are called 
in a various way and set aside because of perhaps gifting. Maybe they're really good at administration. Maybe they're a wonderful evangelist. Um, maybe they're just really good at counseling and they really, really enjoy helping people solve problems. There is a wide swath of giftings, and so we have to consider that when we set aside someone for, for eldership. But with deacons, they have the qualifications as far as character goes, it's the same thing, essentially. But the only, one of the differences, deacons are not required to be able to teach sound doctrine, but they need to be committed to it. Deacons are, want the, the, in some sense, they're cheerleaders of the church. They're excited to help. They're excited to show up. They're, they're always rooting the elders on. They're always committed to, to making sure that sound doctrine continues forth. They may not have the gift of teaching, but that's okay. They don't have to. They just need to be committed to the Christian faith, and it works itself out from there. And that's, by the way, that is one of the main differences between the elders and deacons is that qualification to have to be able to teach. And while we're here, a quick word about deacons. In Acts 6, 1 through 7, the deacons are put in place here for the very first time to help the physical needs of the church. And the apostles said, look, we are really busy. We, wanna, we need to be able to focus on the word of God in prayer. We need men to help take care of the physical needs of the church. That's one of the main differences. And then the, the, these were, they were supposed to help wait on tables. They were supposed to be helping the widows, the orphans, and, and all of that. And that's what the deacons really came, came along. But the mission of evangelism, teaching, study, social engagement with the gospel, um, all of that was, was too important and too demanding to neglect. And it's not like elders are above that. Because it sounds like that. Like, we are too busy preaching and praying. We have no time to wash your feet. That's not what it's, that's not what it's like. Because elders serve in those capacities too. But here, it was a division of labor principle. No, no one man or two men can do it all. So when you put people in place, it's like, okay, you're a deacon. It's your job to make sure things are set up, torn down, cleaned. Make sure you, you, you help manage a deacon fund and, and if we need if there's someone who's poor and we know them and we want to help them great we'll help them that's really what the deacons were set aside to do and it's not because the elders are above that it's just simply a division of labor it is important that the preaching of the word and evangelism and missions and all this stuff is pushed forward um, but we also need people to work together so the deacons came along to serve those people to serve those needs they work with the elders but they're not on the session with the elders Flip to Titus, just a couple of pages back. Titus chapter 1. This is one of the other main passages here. Titus chapter 1, in verses 5 through 9, and I'm just going to kind of walk ourselves, walk us through it. But according to Paul, Titus was left on the island of Crete so that Titus would, and this is verse 5, would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, part of, of putting things in order, aside from straightening out the newly formed congregations and some of their problems, part of orderliness was appointing elders to help manage the church. And this is a, a classic understanding of Reformed doctrine that churches have to have elders. They, have to, they need a plurality of elders. And this was part of putting it in order um, here. So God desires his people to be shepherded, to, to, to be governed, which is why we find these things in Scripture. 
And by the way, that word there in verse 5, appoint, does not necessarily mean that you take up a vote from the people. Uh, the principle can be deduced from other scriptures, Deuteronomy and other places, uh, but that's kind of why we do our head of household the way we do it, is we want to work together to appoint for ourselves elders who meet these qualifications. Anyhow, Paul lists similar things here in verse 6. A man must be above reproach. He needs to be married to just one woman. Um, he can't have, you know, two. <laughs> Not going to work. His children are to be, and by the way, real quick, that doesn't necessarily mean he has to be married, by the way. Because you could have somebody who maybe he was married and his wife passed away and he never chose to remarry and he's in a situation. Well, it says you have to be married to just one woman and you have none. You can't be an elder. No, Paul is making sure that we don't have like a whole lot of women you're being married to. <laughs> one is what you're supposed to have. Um, his children, if he has children, they're to be faithful, and that's, there needs to be discernible fruit in the kiddos. And if there are older kids, they can't be accused of dissipation, which is essentially extravagant squandering and, 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 and prodigality, like think of the prodigal son, where you're just a, a, your, your kid is, is 18 and he just wants to go gambling all the time. Well, that's a, that's a problem. And the kids aren't supposed to be the rebellious type like that. Now, it's important, again, we don't create a law where God has not created a law. One child who may have acted up once in church doesn't mean the man is not qualified. We have to remember that kids are kids, and kids are learning wisdom. And if, and if, if one thing happens and you think, nope, 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 not qualified, well, then you need a stern talking to <laughs> because we're not creating a law where there is no law. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to read these qualifications and make sound, discernible judgments. We're not to be fussy pantses. There's a new word for you, kiddos. Don't be fussy pantses. Now, the character traits outlined in verses 7 through 9, it's a balance of personal conduct and doctrinal sobriety. He needs to simply be a sensible man and he's not quick to anything but glorifying God in tempered Puritanism. <laughs> That's, he's, he's quick to holiness, not quick to you know, wine or alcohol. And a big requirement is to be able to not just teach sound doctrine, but know it enough to reprove those who contradict it. And this means that a man must be quick to fight the right sort of doctrinal battles and not be a quarrelsome jerk in the assembly. You need to be able to see false doctrine and jump on it like a dog to a bone and go after it immediately. Those are the quarrels we want. We want to fight for sound doctrine, and we need to be able to do that. But he must fight. He must hate false doctrine and sin and be ready to call into light all of those things so that it and the person peddling it can be straightened out. So how shall we then live? I want to explain a few things about our... our our government model here. We've been working on it for a year. And when we consider how a church should be structured, it's important to note that there are three basic views of the church. The first view is that of independency, so an independent church. Local churches are essentially completely autonomous and they function strictly on their own terms and conditions. 
Many, if not all, Baptists function this way. Um, Congregational churches, you've seen Bible churches that have the word Bible in the middle. It's something Bible church. Usually it's a town. Um, whenever, Whenever you see those, usually they are strictly autonomous. They, they have no formal dealings with other churches outside of perhaps some sort of ministerial association or, or an outreach event or something like that. They really, by and large, keep to themselves. And generally speaking, they are governed solely from within with no outside influence. So that's kind of your independent churches. And that's probably the majority, excluding like the Catholic, Roman Catholic, but the majority of Protestant churches probably function that way at least in America. Now the second view is that of hierarchy. And that means that local churches are not autonomous, but instead they are governed either by a centralized bureaucracy or some sort of overarching governing body. So you have a denomination who has a central office somewhere where you can mail a check. They have an address. So you have autonomous churches, but you also have hierarchical churches where it's really top-down. It's a top-down approach. Roman Catholics function this way. If the Vatican says it, you have to do it, that sort of thing. Um, Episcopalians function like this as well. And Methodists function like this as well. There are other minor denominations, or I shouldn't say minor, like smaller denominations that will function that way too, where you have a centralized governing body that helps make decisions for all the other churches. And I will say that some Presbyterian denominations function this way, where a general assembly meets from all the various churches that are in this denomination, and they dictate, they make decisions and then dictate it down from that central body. So those are the two, two views that we would not hold to. The third view is what we would hold to, hence our desire to join the CREC, and that is Presbyterianism. So you have independency, you have hierarchy, and then you have your basic, what we would say, biblical Presbyterianism. So local churches are autonomous to some degree, but they cooperate with other churches in what's called a presbytery, and that is a larger body. And so the CREC functions that way. It's much different than the PCA, uh, the Presbyterian Church of America, and the PCUSA and other presbyterians can't really call PCUSA Presbyterian anymore. They're they're so far down, (laughs) they've fallen off the mountain. Um, But these denominations exist because people have doctrinal and missiological camaraderie. That's why denominations exist, is because you have convictions about theological truths. Could be Reformed Calvinism. It could be, you know, it could simply be Arminianism, it could be various theological views, but that's why denominations are there, is because people enjoy working with each other. But a true Presbyterian government, there is no centralized bureaucracy controlling from the top down. Rather, it's a bottom-up cooperation. So we work, we work together, and the way the CREC functions is that after you're a member for two years, then you can vote at the Presbytery level. And the Presbyteries are all over the U.S., the world too, technically, but in the U.S. you have different presbyteries that are location-based. So you have some that are more in the northeast region, southeast region, midwest, west, northeast, north, or sorry, northwest. Um, There's a lot of regions and they work together, but every um, couple of years, 
I don't remember if it's every year or every two years now off the top of my head, but you send delegations from each church and then from the presbytery all the way to the gathering, but they don't make decisions at the top level and then you just have to follow suit. They might create memorials or they might create certain uh, doctrinal stances that they work with the other churches, but at the end of the day, you're just working together, but there's still autonomy at the local level. I just think that that's the biblical, the biblical model. Now, it's important for us to understand that the New Testament's usage of these various words comes from the Old Testament, particularly the word elder. The Old Testament had a Presbyterian form of government. The Sanhedrin was the General Assembly. They had representatives, and the Sanhedrin was the gathering of that General Assembly. But the key principle is representation here. We have, here in America, well, it's a little broken at the moment, but we have representative, representatives or, or representative government, and that's thanks to Calvin's work in Geneva 500 years ago. That's a fruit of Reformed theology is representative government. Representative government means that people are put in place to represent and govern the interests of the people. That's frustrating today in our politics because they don't usually listen or you try to get a meeting and they never get back to you. Personal experience here. Like, you're supposed to represent me. You should be begging me for a meeting. But alas, we have it backwards. Now the elders in the Old Testament, they had some civil responsibilities, meeting at the gates of the city to discern di different cases and whatnot. But by and large, they were there and put in place to help manage the various tribes. And you'll, have, you'll remember that it was Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who urged him to put in place a representative judiciary to aid in helping solve various disputes. Moses, you're one guy. You can't handle all these disputes. So put some in charge of 10 and some of 100, some of 1,000, and let's put a representative structure in place. And then all the big issues, they can come to you, sort of like a Supreme Court supposed to function. And, and then, otherwise, everybody else can handle it. That is Presbyterianism. That is representative government. And when we get to the New Testament, the elders are set aside with authority from the Word of God to shepherd the people as representatives of the people. And they have the authority to make decisions. And when decisions become too difficult, an appeal can be made to other churches in the presbytery to help resolve the conflict. Uh, it could very well be, in, in, in the future, Cross and Crown, you have an elder session put in place, and we have, a, have to have a congregational meeting because maybe we just don't know. Either decision could go either way, and we may just want to say, okay, church, like, we need to talk about this. What, will this. what do you think? And then we hash it out there. Or you call on your friends in the presbytery, and you say, guys, come adjudicate this. Help us solve this problem because we are unable to do it and we want to make sure we make the right decision and that's by the way that's what happens in acts 15 with the jerusalem council so a dispute happened in a local church the apostle who was there did not solve the problem on his own volition and as a result they appealed via a synod of sorts to join up with other elders and at this point it was the ones in jerusalem in order to, to uh, resolve the situation. So they, they went and said, we can't figure this out. We need to go and appeal to other elders and other churches. They go to Jerusalem. They have the council. James helps solve the issue. 
And once the decision's made, the churches submit to it, they follow suit. This is, from the book of Acts, representative, cooperative Presbyterian government. And that's how it's supposed to work. Now, the earliest churches were synagogues, and that's why the Presbyterian form of government took root. Church officers were identified. They were set apart for the task. And curiously enough, the three main words used were all used interchangeably. And that's evidenced in three places, Titus 1, Acts 20, and 1 Peter 5. So we have three words used. The first one is elder. That's the Greek word presbyteros, elder. The next word is like bishop or overseer, and that is episkopos. That's where episcopalian comes from. And the third word that's used is poimenos, which is a pastor or a minister or a shepherd. So you have three main words that are used to describe one office, which we just shorten up and say elder. They have some level, and again, they're used interchangeably, but elders tend to have more of a judicial ruling function. Bishops and overseers tend to have more like administrative type things to, to deal with. And then, of course, pastors focus more on teaching and preaching. All of them are to shepherd, but these three words are used interchangeably. And in, in 1 Peter 5, what Steve read earlier, you can see that all of them are used there. Um, if You have to dig into the Greek to see it, but it's there. And those are the three main words that are used in this way. Now, all elders are on what we call the session. The session is the governing body. But not all elders are necessarily pastors or teachers. But pastors and teachers are elders, however. So here at Cross and Crown, we have essentially said that there are two main offices. This, I'm going to explain this, but it, gets, it can get muddled. When you think of an overarching view, you have elders and deacons. That's sort of the baseline viewpoint that many people have. But within the office of elder, you essentially have three different what we might call specialty offices. And we spell this out in our Constitution. We have pastors or ministered, ministers. Pastors or ministers are typically those who do the bulk of the work in preaching and teaching. Um, they do counseling, shepherding. They lead God's people in worship on the Lord's Day. Um, and per 1 Timothy 5.17 and other places, they should be paid by the church. They're set aside to do this, so they are to be compensated accordingly. So that's just pastors or ministers. That's one. The second one are teachers or doctors. That's where the, the Latin, where we get doctor, comes from. It's just as a, as a teacher. Teachers or doctors in the church, their efforts include reading and writing, furthering the doctrinal integrity of the church. Oftentimes, they're the ones going and doing work in ministry. I was reading, uh, finished a biography recently. John Calvin was a minister in Geneva. Theodore Beza, who came after him, after Calvin died, Theodore Beza was more like a teacher, doctor kind. In fact, he led up the school in Geneva. And that's kind of where the university comes from, where the teacher or doctor comes from. They come from the university. So that's the church's work in that area. So you have pastors or teachers, and then the third category is simply your ruling elder. And a ruling elder's job is to help manage and shepherd the church accordingly. So that's kind of how we, in a lot of Reformed confessions, we'll talk about this, the Belgic, to some degree the Westminster as well, 
but they kind of delineate these, these three, three offices of elder. So we would say we're probably more in the four office camp. We have those three types of elders and then the deacons, and that's the four. Now, generally speaking, the elders are set aside by Christ in order to, one, rule and shepherd. That's 1 Peter 5. They're to equip the church, Ephesians 4. They are to pray and fast. That's in the book of Acts, Acts 6 and Acts 13. They are to teach and preach as well, 1 Timothy 5, 17. They are to administer church discipline and restoration, 1 Corinthians 5. And number six, they are to visit the sick, the visit the sick, James 5. So if you're sick, call on the elders for prayer. If you're sick and you're at home, call on the elders. We will bring frankincense, anoint you with oil, and pray. And the Bible tells us to do that. And I don't know, we get shy about that, or it's just a cold. Well, maybe it is, but we can pray for you. Like, it's not a sin. <laughs> We're allowed to do that. So stated differently, elders are to guide the flock, guard the flock, care for the flock, feed the flock, protect the flock, and pray for the flock. That is their job. That is their task. Now, in all of this, church members have responsibility too. So we're going to talk about you guys. Hebrews 13.7 reads this way, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Remember them, pray for them earnestly, pray for your elders, hear them teach the word, pay attention to it. You want to hear from God's word, and this is part of what God said it, said it, how he has set it up. You need to imitate their faith and their conduct. Hebrews 13, 17 emphasizes this again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. So leaders are to be obeyed and submitted to, but they're not to be reviled, they're not to be falsely accused, they're not to be scorned. And the Bible plainly says to do this so that being an elder is a joy and not a difficulty. And you have to ask, in what situations does this apply? Because... <laughs> If it's no situations, then it's in the Bible and God was wrong. But in what situations? Um, being a pastor is a great joy, and I, I, I do enjoy it. I love it. I, I enjoy teaching and preaching. I, I love leading us in, in worship, and I very much enjoy being on the streets, being involved with Abolitionist Rising, um, being in Africa, like just doing the, doing the work. And I appreciate your prayers and your commitment to that. And it is a joy. Um, and we also need to make sure that we have that perspective for the sake of everyone, <laughs> for the health of our church. But as far as church membership goes, we have a church covenant, so we know exactly what the Bible expects from us as Christians in the church. What, is God, what does God expect from his elders and pastors? But what does God expect from you? What does God expect from you as a church member? And if you don't know what that is, we have it outlined, and you can see it. It's in our Constitution, and um, we're going to be putting a packet together where those sorts of things are available. But we have to ask a question here as we kind of close up shop here. What happens when bad things happen? I know that never takes place in churches. 
What happens when bad things happen? Well, we are called to practice church discipline. We follow Matthew 18. However, unfortunately, some Christians choose to forego this process altogether. But Matthew 18 is very, very clear that when someone sins, you go to them and show them their fault. Just you and them, period. Not the internet, not anyone else. You go to them. I did a sermon on this, I think it was last year, in the Life Together series. Go back and listen to it if you want a reminder. But that's the process. You don't go to anyone else. <laughs> you go to that person. And if they will not listen to you and repent, then what do you do? You bring in two or three witnesses. People that have witnessed this and seen this behavior and this sinful behavior. And then you go with them. And if they won't listen, you tell it to the church. Which presumably means you'd get your elders involved, which may very well be the elders involved at stage two. But it's certainly at stage three. Then we go to the church. All right. So if, if somebody is finding out that they have a problem with somebody else because the church knows and steps one and two are gone, we have a serious breakdown, serious breakdown. And it tells you a lot about people who do that. So we are supposed to practice discipline as laid out in our Constitution. We do it to glorify God, whether you eat or drink, no matter what you do. First Corinthians tells us in 1031, glorify God. We want to purify the church from the leaven of sin and unrighteousness. The church has to be purified. The church needs to be pruned. And when God does it, we give him the glory. That, but that's supposed to be the case. If you have someone who is in unrepentant sin constantly, day after day, month after month, year after year, it's best that they are not here. We're also to do this to keep the Lord's wrath away from us because God will bring his wrath against the sons of disobedience. So if we won't do things the right way, God's wrath will be on us and then, then we have bigger problems. We also, Galatians 6.1, we want to practice church discipline so that we can restore the wayward individual. If someone's gone wayward and they don't see it and we try to confront it and we bring witnesses and then we tell the church, at some point, we hope and pray that they would be restored, that they would confess that sin to the church and say, you're, you're right, you all knew that I had this going on in my life and I was fighting it at every turn, but, but I realized, thanks by God's grace, I'm sorry and I repent before the church. Great. And we lay our hands on that brother or sister and we pray for them and we restore them. And that's part of church discipline. And the last part is what Deuteronomy 21, 21 warns. We practice church discipline so that we just deter others from sin. We're supposed to have a healthy fear of sin. And that's the process put in place in church government by God so that we have a healthy fear of sin. So discipline is meant to follow God's plan for dealing with sin. It's not easy, it's not fun, trust me. <laughs> it's not easy at all and it's never fun. But it is necessary. And God has given us a blueprint for it. Discipline in a church is like the immune system of the church. And if you don't deal with sin, you'll soon find out, we will soon find out, that we will have terminal cancer. The sin of Achan was so bold. I mean, he, he took the goods and Israel lost the next battle because one guy decided he wanted to do his own thing. There's a principle there we could learn much from. See, the church is in possession of the word of God 
and the sacraments, but she is also in possession of discipline in order to make sure the word and the sacraments remain pure. Her task is to be a guardian of truth, a steward of God's grace, an art piece of God's beauty. The household of God, the church, is the pillar and support of the truth, says 1 Timothy 3.15. The church of Christ is a beautiful bride adorned with all the jewels of the gospel and the clothing of Christ's righteousness. And the church, the government of the church ought to aid in the development and maturity and in the purity of, of holiness so that the word so that the world itself might look on us and gaze with wonder and amazement. Look how they deal with each other. Look how they encourage one another. Look how they deal with sin and unrighteousness. We are salt and light, and this means that we have the judicial maturity to teach the nations how to obey Christ. And as we, as we seek to establish ourselves as a beachhead of post-millennial righteousness here in Northern Virginia, we need seriously, we need to seriously consider these principles that we've discussed today. We need to consider them. There is a world that is ripe for gospel preaching, and we, we must be on guard and watch over ourselves, watch over each other, to make sure that we're not losing our first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus closes churches down because they lose their first love. So we must, we must take great care to manage ourselves so that we don't cause dissension in the body. A lack of self-government and self-management is absolutely what causes problems. But we want to be governed by righteousness. And it's going to require an unflappable pursuit of Christ in his kingdom. A relentless pursuit. So may we be good stewards of the deposit we have received by the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you today. We are grateful that you have given us your word, that we can read it, that we can understand it, and that we can practice it. And we pray your blessing on us, Lord, as we seek to be this salt and light here in Northern Virginia that you've called us to be. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance. Grant us repentance so that we might have the self-government necessary to achieve these other governments that you've called us to. And we know, Christ, that you are the king. You are certainly our priest who has died for our sins and been raised from the dead. And you are our king who manages the world. And we pray that you would help us to manage ourselves so that we might be good stewards. Would you strengthen us as individuals, strengthen our families, strengthen us as a local body, God, and may we glorify you in what we say and what we do. May you receive the honor. In Christ we pray. Amen.